the United States has never won a conflict with the hardware that we had going into it, right? We, we've always had this understanding that we needed to be able to ramp up our manufacturing quickly in response to a threat and that we needed to be able to adapt and build new things very quickly. Like you look at what happened during all of the major wars that we've been involved in. We've seen multiple generations of aircraft, multiple generations of weapons, even inside of a war. And right now, it's pretty clear that the United States doesn't have that manufacturing muscle anymore. It doesn't have that innovation muscle anymore. Look at what's happening with in Ukraine, where we're deploying decades of stockpiles of various weapon systems. We've literally been stockpiling for decades, and we've exhausted them almost immediately in what is a relatively small conflict, big picture-wise, in the world. And so it's, you, you look at that, and it's hard to imagine where we could possibly move fast enough to build the things that would be relevant for a new conflict. Well, I think one of the quick, big questions, I mean, when, Palmer, when you, you were talking about that we don't have the technology going into a war that we started with, it reminds me of Paul Kennedy's work, Engineers of Victory, which he talks about, particularly in World War II, the number of technologies that the United States literally invented in the war in order to fight off the Nazis and the Japanese. The Pacific Theater, I think, highlights five or six, including such things as radar. I'm curious, when you look at the conflicts here, and we have a couple of different threats. We have threats from classic great powers, China and Russia and uh, Iran come to mind. We also have sort of emerging threats, cybersecurity, you know, small groups uh, uh, and cells that are fighting either on terrorism or, or online. How do we sort of conduct ourselves and rebuild the industrial base given the threat environment we're seeing today? Well, it's really tough. I mean, you look at companies like Apple, they're the largest company in the United States, and they have invested $275 billion in Chinese manufacturing, explicitly contractually by agreement with the Chinese Communist Party. That doesn't even include the investment that they've made up to that point without a specific agreement like that. And I bring that up because you compare it to what a lot of people see rebuilding the United States in capacity. You've probably seen the CHIPS Act, and it's being hailed as this once-in-a-generation incredible bill, $52 billion to bring back semiconductor manufacturing to the United States. And it's being hailed as an incredible thing. And the reality is it's one-fifth of what one company is investing in our largest strategic adversary do, doing the same thing. And, it, and so what does it take to rebuild America's manufacturing base? It, it's probably well beyond what can be done with these kind of one-off PR stunts. Like we're going to funnel money to this particular project or this particular project. Fundamentally, the United States has to be a place where people want to manufacture things. This isn't just um, a money issue or facilities issue. A lot of people imagine that China won manufacturing the manufacturing war because of cheap labor. That's the easy narrative. The harder to deal with narrative is that they actually have better people in a lot of areas and that they've been generating more and more people because in the United States, people don't want to get into manufacturing anymore. It's not the cool thing. It's not like aerospace used to be. In China, the young kids who are really smart want to work in manufacturing. They want to work in battery technology. They want to work in semiconductor technology, sensor technology, drone technology. And so it's it's not just that we lack the capacity, we we, we lack the talent too. So build, building, building this up, I, I don't want to say it's too big of a problem for me to, to give a roadmap, but it is. Trey, what is your perspective on this? During a time of war, existential threat becomes a tremendous motivator to national strategic economies. Since the end of the Cold War, we haven't had that sort of existential threat that's motivated people to go and work on these key strategic problems. Palmer gave a speech a few weeks ago where the title was, the current year is too late for the current thing. In a culture where the current thing dominates all of the like creative energy of an economy, 
it's pretty easy to like lose track of the importance of some of the strategic initiatives that you can't wait for that crisis to happen. You have to be prepared in order to prevent the crisis from happening or to be able to respond appropriately to the crisis. So I think part of this is just like kind of inducing into our culture the ability to think critically about important things that don't align with, you know, whatever like drop in a bucket cultural narrative is dominating the headlines. So I want to go back to, I mean, Trey emphasizes the point that, you know, if you're looking at the current year and, and the current thing and everyone's focused on that, you're now sort of predicting the future and driving the innovation where it's going. And I want to go retrospectively because for Popper, for yourself, it's almost exactly 10 years since you started your last company, Oculus VR, launching the Oculus Rift. And what was interesting at the time, if we go back to mid-2012, you were emphasizing hardware at a time when I think almost no VCs were particularly interested in hardware, VR, any of these sorts of categories. Everyone was focused on software, fintech, and, and services, and SaaS. And I, I'm curious on twofold. One is, why did you go into hardware when everyone else was sort of going into software? And, and two, when we were talking about sort of the Chinese manufacturing hubs, I mean, you must have run into the challenge of building these devices locally, domestically in the United States. So I think you're looking at this from the lens of a VC. You know, why would you work in hardware versus software? Why consumer versus enterprise? And the reality was I liked VR. It was my hobby. And so that's why I was in it. If it had been a software play, that's what I would have done. But the reality was where it was really lacking was the hardware. Now, we did have a lot of software effort. Like pe people often look at the Rift as just a hardware win. But actually, a huge win that we had was being the first company to build a software toolkit that made it easy for any game developer to make a virtual reality game. Up until that point, even if you had the hardware, which cost an enormous amount of money, every developer needed to be an expert systems integrator to integrate motion tracking hardware and rendering hardware and the, and the display hardware. We made it so that anyone who had ever taken a 30-minute Unity course could make something in VR. So, so you, you had this passion for Oculus. You were focused on VR at a time when a lot of folks weren't focused on it, weren't worried about a return, but you did have to actually build device, which meant you had to go into manufacturing, into the supply chain. Did you look domestically on how to build uh, the Oculus Rift? Did you have to go overseas? And, and what was sort of the learnings that you learned from that company as you applied to Android? It's very easy to build things at prototype scale compared to mass manufacturing scale. So when you need to make millions of something, you have to have a totally different mindset. And we did actually look at domestic manufacturing. In fact, there were some very early Oculus development products, which were manufactured in the United States and also in Mexico, uh, which I would count as infinitely preferable to building in China. And it, it wasn't one of those things where we didn't try. We actually had a whole little contingent of Jingo engineers who really wanted to build this stuff in the United States if possible. But when we did the analysis, it just wasn't feasible at all. I mean, was, here, here's, here's an ex example. Uh, we were building a particular lens and it was a really cutting edge type of optic that had never really been done in the consumer product before. The only vendors in the United States that would even respond to our requests were people who built missile optics, basically lenses that would go in complex arrays that would go onto, onto missiles. And they would diamond turn us these custom optics. And they were quoting us at about $6,000 per lens in production quantity. And it was, it was a very difficult lens to manufacture in that you had to use an injection mold that had active heating and active cooling, uh, basically liquid liquid channels in inside of the tool. And you had to vibrate the tool 
and heat it and cool it in a perfectly controlled way or the lenses in it would warp and they wouldn't be exactly the same from lens to lens and you couldn't do your software distortion correctly. So in China, we were getting quotes for somewhere between like three and $10 per lens. And in the US, the cheapest we could get was in the thousands. This is a problem from little startups like Oculus all the way up to multi-hundred billion dollar corporations, even ones that desperately for political and social reasons want to build domestically. Well, unbelievable. And I, I think, you know, obviously a success selling the company to Facebook for $2.3 billion. You started looking around for, for new projects to work on. How did you three meet each other and how did you decide to go into the defense industry? Because again, and I know I'm putting a little bit of the VC hat on, I don't know any VC back in 2017 who was sort of raising their hat. Well, maybe for yourself, uh, but almost no one who was like, hey, you know where the future of startup innovation is going to come? The defense primes. I mean, it was Founders Fund. Trey probably has the better perspective, but we all <laughs> yeah, met through yeah. Founders Fund. They were probably the only fund that was looking at it that way, Trey, Trey specifically. Yeah. So when I left Palantir at the end of 2013, I came over to Founders Fund on Peter's request, more or less. Not knowing anything about finance, I decided that the one thing that I did sort of understand was defense technology. Founderstone was a large investor in both SpaceX and Palantir. So I kind of started canvassing the market and trying to meet with every company I could that had either bid on a government contract or won a government contract and also raised venture dollars to understand what else was out there. Didn't really make any investments, went back to the team and just kind of told them, you know, I've met with hundreds of companies at this point, retrospectively looking back, we didn't miss anything. It's not like there were companies out there that we just didn't see. You know, I had been talking to Palmer. We were the first institutional investor in Oculus. I knew that he was interested in national security uh, and also still had, you know, a strong network of my close friends like Brian, Matt Grimm, who was one of our other co-founders from the Palantir days and pitched this idea to all of them that like, man, it would be really cool to you know, start next generation defense prime and Palmer surprisingly, instead of saying like, wow, yeah, that's an interesting idea. He was like, I've been thinking of the exact same thing. Here are pictures of jet engines. I've been assembling in the drained pool in the back of my house at Wood in Woodside. <laughs> um, and so that kind of like accelerated the process pretty quickly. And when he exited Facebook, we just immediately picked up on where that conversation left off. Brian, I want to bring you in here. Will you talk to us a bit about how Android can compete in a space where the legacy players are so entrenched? Yeah. So, I mean, the, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about um, somewhat like optimistically about why we think we can win in this space. So I think that, you know, you've talked a lot about how broken the Defense Department is and sort of where America is on this position. But I think the reality and the advantage you have working with the Defense Department is you have some of the most mission aligned and driven people who actually want to solve these problems. People aren't sticking around working in the military because it's fun and easy. They're doing it because they are truly mission-driven. And often the bureaucracy and all the policies get in the way, but when you can present alternatives, you can actually give them a path forward to win and to succeed. You know, it's not 100% of the time, but they often take it. They want ways to move forward. They want ways to actually solve these problems. You know, the parts I get really excited about with the business are in like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? One, it's an extremely important problem, but there are people who do want to move and people who, are want, who do want to solve these problems. We've had amazing success working with special operations. We've had amazing success working with a lot of partner nations, working with a lot of different groups within the DoD. There are these pockets that really do want to move fast. You know, we've moved from, you know, some of these concepts through to large-scale programs. You know, for SOCOM, for example, is two and a half years from start, when we started working on counter-drone systems when we were awarded a billion-dollar program. That is record time, right? That is actually quite fast. 
for any organization to move that volume of commitment out. And, and so I, I do think there are these bright spots where if you can build the right technology, you can get aligned with the right people and find these urgent mission problems, you can have a lot of success. So those are the areas we get really excited about is finding these places where we can win, where we can move fast and where technology can actually make a huge difference. And I think that's been the difference that's made us so successful is having that conviction and pushing really hard where we know this is a problem. We know there's something we can succeed on. And if I could talk about you know, how that well, it kind of turns into a real decision-making process. A lot of other defense companies, definitely most of the startups that Trey was looking at, they come out of academia, you know, people figuring out some cool technology and then trying to figure out how can I sell this? How can I make this? Like they're like, oh, I can't with this cool laser tech or this cool radar tech or this cool imaging tech. How can I sell this into DoD? And then they desperately try to find some niche in DoD. And what we've done is basically the, the, the opposite. It's where can we make the biggest difference? What are the biggest openings right now where someone could, if they had the right thing, could move quickly into production? And then that's where we invest our research and development resources. Even with like SOCOM, we went in saying, okay, how can we solve the counter drone problem? What are the things that a company trying to solve this problem would build? And then we built the most important ones uh, and started going down the list. Whereas a lot of other counter drone companies, they start with like, I have a novel beam forming technique for this type of antenna. And, and I, I believe I can build a counter drone company out of it. Uh, and the same thing with like counter drone laser companies. They're like, we were building lasers for other DOD projects that didn't make any sense. But now a new project that does not make any sense has emerged. The counter drone threat, that, that is a big difference between what we've done and other companies have done. I would, I would encourage other companies to probably think about it that way. You know, f figure out where an opening in DOD is rather than how you can use something you've already built to, to, to try to break in because it's pretty unlikely that by chance you happen to have built exactly the thing that is the best thing if you weren't even thinking about it being applied in that area from the beginning which is also why i'm skeptical of like a lot of these dual use commercial applications it's like yeah it's, it's unlikely your thing you built for commercial applications is the best thing also for the military so clearly the current system is broken with misaligned incentives you have outlined what could be a better structure. My question then becomes, what is next? What is the ultimate goal? Brian, let's start with you. The mission's quite clear, right? So for us, it is the U.S. of the great powers is the one founded on human rights. It's the one who wants to actually ensure freedom around the world. And you can have your disagreements with whether the U.S. is right or wrong in this, but it's pretty hard to disagree that we're in a better spot than we would be with China or one of these other countries having this dominant position. I think the part that gets lost is is what Trey was saying earlier around the goal is to prevent war. The goal is to make the outcome of any conflict so clear that you would not try it. The goal is to give nations the ability to defend themselves, not to perpetrate aggression, but to actually protect their sovereignty, protect their people. And you look at what happened in Ukraine, and to me that was a failure, not just of, you know, are we producing today? But we failed to give them the hard power necessary to make that conflict obvious. We failed to give them the abilities to make it so clear to the aggressor that this would not be successful. You know, in reality, I think it turned out much harder than, you know, Russia was anticipating that Putin was anticipating, but that wasn't obvious. And that's actually a huge problem. So for the folks here, what we get really excited about is being able to really move the needle on how do we change that posture? How do we make it so clear what the outcome of these conflicts will be? And how do we keep the men and women protecting America and our allies as safe as possible in doing it? We work on a lot of areas of autonomy, work in a lot of areas of unmanned systems. We try to think about how to do this as sort of low cost and intelligently as possible. And that's been kind of the motivating case through and through. You know, we're not working on R&D problems. We're not looking at, you know, kind of a science and technology question 10 years out. 
always the question is, how are we getting this to field now? And does this move the needle on the U.S.'s position? When we've aligned to that, we've been able to get an amazing amount of urgency from the government. And I think there's just a lot of clarity. What we try to do is say, here's your mission problem. We can solve this now. And that has moved it much faster than kind of waiting for the bureaucracy to turn around and say, yes, this kind of follows the process. We're like, nope, let's actually go out and say, hey, here are the core issues that we need to solve right now and really get a lot of motivation around them. Josh, I want to bring you in here. You had a good point about the challenges of acquiring and keeping people who want to work in the sector. You years ago had uh, employees at Google protesting their work on Project Maven. You had a variety of other people that just didn't want to work on these problems. And increasingly now, in light of current events, I think people do. Where is, and, and you were the, the first or amongst the first to really capture that zeitgeist and say unapologetically, you know, we're not just making technologies and leaving it up to the customer to figure out what they do. We are building technologies that are going to be in the service of the women and men on the front lines. Where is the talent coming from? Where are you recruiting from? Is it old primes? Is it young tech companies? Is it straight out of school? Where is the talent that is rebuilding this arsenal of democracy coming from? We've been able to attract people across the spectrum on this. So we're getting people who are either frustrated or looking for something different coming from traditional defense. We're getting people coming from big tech who are excited about the mission problems we're working on. We're even getting people out of university where you know, I think historically it's been hard for them to tell their friends they're working on defense. It's, it's some, you know, we've tried to be very frontal with what we're doing. And I think the reason it's worked is we are unapologetic about it. We're very clear about what we do. We're very clear about what we make and why and how we think about it. It's a very serious business. We take it very seriously and we're very clear about what we're working on. There's a lot of these guys who were previously interested in going to work for Lockheed or Raytheon. It's just, they don't want to work in a place where they're going to get to move very, very slowly. I mean, what, what was, what's the Northrop statistic where uh, during the Cold War, uh, Northrop, uh, the average engineer at Northrop would get to work on seven different airframes during their time at Northrop, and the average now is 1.1. So that means that in your time at Northrop Grumman, you're likely to work on one aircraft. And to be clear, you know, working on one, you know, if you're working there, you're doing that. And then one out of 10 people will get the chance to work on a second aircraft. Uh, and pe people just don't want to do that. We're a great place for those people to, if they have those values, come and work on things on a, at a much faster pace. Yeah. The great former Lockheed CEO, Norm Augustine, had some quote that was pretty funny that he said, like in, I forget the year, but at, in 2035, the entire defense budget will buy one aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he did list the specs. So he listed the specifications. He's like, it'll be one aircraft. It'll carry, you know, 10,000 10, tons and fly at Mach 5. <laughs> but, but it will be one airplane. And it was, it was a critique of how planes have gotten so much more expensive in pursuit of, 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 of uh, exquisite capability. But, you know, making the point, obviously you can't fight wars with, such with such a machine. I, I want to come back to the technological piece because it's an important one in the diversity of all the crazy stuff that you guys are building. But this is a natural jumping point to the different economic structure in, in philosophy of when you started Anduril. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter is probably, you know, Exhibit A, although there are 20 different ones from large aircraft carriers to other programs where they are built in several hundred congressional districts. They are cost plus. Uh, they've massively overrun. They haven't delivered, and it has cost the taxpayers billions, if not tens of billions of dollars, in excess. For folks not familiar, cost plus is kind of the way the government does all these contracts. And the idea here is, government pays you for everything it costs plus a fixed incentive fee. So you know you get a couple percent margin on top of it. 
obviously this has incredibly broken incentives uh, where all of a sudden now you're paid for things being more complex, more expensive, failing, taking longer. It really doesn't incentivize you to perform as sort of efficiently and cleanly as possible. And incentives matter. And our belief with this was this is not going to work if we're sitting there thinking about how are we maximizing our billable hours for every engineer working on this project. It's only going to work if we can focus on delivering technology that actually makes a difference. So the way we've looked at this is, well, let's just fund the research and development ourselves. The IRAD budget for most of these big primes is is a paltry amount compared to any big tech company. I think you're looking at like one-ish percent and you compare it with like Apple, which is, you know, wildly higher than this. It, it, it's just, there's no comparison there. There's no sort of belief that by building technology, they can substantially, you know, increase their future. They want to be paid and have all the risks of absorbed by the taxpayer. Our view was you're just going to get the best timeline, the best product and the best technology out quickest. If you actually are motivated to get to market, but very simple, very simple idea. So we fund our own research and development. It's worked incredibly well and it's allowed us to move very, very fast where we can build these prototypes in a matter of months, get them out in front of customers and have them understand what's possible. And so this has been an extremely core part of how we believed in what we're doing. And, you know, even apart from the, the incentive structure, it forces us to have conviction in that technology, in that roadmap of what we're building. And that again is, is quite different, right? Where, you know, if you're in this other world, you're kind of waiting to say, well, tell me what you want. I have the best engineers. They can build anything. No, our view is we will have conviction and we need to have conviction. And what are those technologies? What are those products that will solve real urgent problems? And that is a very different mindset than if you're just working on sort of getting reimbursed for what it costs. So I know, I know we're almost up on exactly time, but I do have one final question because I think it's highly relevant to Andrew. I watched Top Gun Maverick two weeks ago, a, a film that both is a, an amazing kind of statement on, on uh, America and patriotism, particularly beautiful for, for Fourth of July. But also it was a kind of a great defense policy piece you don't see in film very often, which was the, the core of the story was this tension between a pilot Maverick uh, from the original Top Gun, which is played by Tom Cruise, who's up against the fact that uh, automation is coming for the manned war fighters. So, you know, he's a pilot, he's out of date, he's old, his career is coming to a close, he's stuck at the captain level. And it's sort of this tension between the future of what defense needs to be versus the past of what defense is sort of nostalgically looking at for most people. How did you feel about the film? Because I, I assume you all watched it. Yeah, and actually, we took the whole company to see it the night that it came out. Um, so we, we definitely did go see it. I mean, so my, my feelings going into it were complex because one of the largest financiers of the film was Tencent, which has a lot of money from the CCP in their fund and from the state from state owned entities. And so I, I was pretty concerned that we were going to see a lot of modifications to the story. And some of that bore out true. I don't know if you remember the controversy, but when the trailers came out, Tom Cruise was wearing his same flight jacket that he had worn in the original film, but it was missing the Taiwanese flag and the Japanese flag, which is especially bad. Actually, the Taiwan thing, I can kind of get it. You frame it as, oh, it's a civil war issue for us. But it's like, come on, you're going to pull the flag of Japan off of the jacket. Like anything you could complain about is, is pretty long time ago. And they're one of the U.S.'s top allies. Um, and so that that really had me feeling conflicted. One of the cool things is actually uh, they, they ended up putting them back in the film and this didn't leak until the day of release. But it turns out that Tencent got their money refunded that they had put in and they pulled out of distribution and marketing for the film right at the last second because they were afraid that being involved with a film that had still ended up so pro-American would uh, reflect poorly on them domestically. 
you, know, you, you can see the influence that remains. Like, I, it's pretty ridiculous when you watch these highly technical fighter pilots and analysts and they talk deeply about the weapon systems and the mission profiles. You know, and you're up at, you're, and you know, you're, you're, in, you're in this aircraft with this weapons loadout and you're up against fifth generation fighters flown by the enemy. And it's like, it's just like ridiculous that they won't just, that they won't say it. They, they can't say who the enemy is. They can't say what they're flying. Uh, you, you never see their, any of their faces or hear any of their voices. And I think that's probably some of the 10 cent influence, but overall amazing movie just broke a billion dollars at the box office. Uh, they need to, they need to make more movies like that. Fantastic. Well, this has been so great. Paul or Brian Trey, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you.